0: To Dog Talk and Kitties Too, I'm Tracy Hotchner. I love cats and dogs and the people who care about them. Every week I talk with authors and experts to expand our understanding and appreciation of the animals who share our lives. To hear earlier episodes of this show and download podcasts of other Pet Talk radio shows that I co-host with top veterinarians and experts, please go to RadioPetLady.com. Dog Talk is a production of Pet Media, Inc., which is solely responsible for its content. And I'm excited to bring you the third annual New York Dog Film Festival, sponsored by the Petco Foundation, on December 10th in New York City. And the day before, December 9th, will be the first ever New York Cat Film Festival, sponsored by Dr. Elsie's Precious Cat. Both festivals will have two programs that are a medley of short films celebrating the human-animal bond, while benefiting the Mayor's Alliance for New York City's animals. This year we'll be at the School for Visual Arts on West 33rd Street, so you'd better get your tickets soon. All the details are at DogfilmFestival.com and CatfilmFestival.com. This show is brought to you with the generous support of Waruva, a family-owned pet food company whose owners want to feed their own pets and ours with ingredients that are good enough for people to eat, using the same care, ingredients, and facilities where they make food for people. The company name is odd, but celebrates the Foreman family's embrace of rescuing animals, naming the company after their kitty cats. W.E. for Webster, R.U. for Rudy, and V.A. for Vanessa. And they are passionate about good nutrition. Their Caloric Harmony Dry Food for Dogs is formulated on the principle of how the body actually metabolizes food and the quality of the protein. Warruba's canned food for cats come in endless varieties to satisfy even the most finicky feline. You'll find Waruva wherever fine natural pet foods are sold. My three guests today are the marvelous John Bradshaw in England. He has a new book, The Animals Among Us, that is full of some incredible facts and thoughts about the animals among us, actually. Sandy will be here from Operation Kindness in Dallas. It's taken in a lot of the, the, the dogs and cats that were displaced during the Texas hurricanes and was a beneficiary of the Dog Film Festival. And Peter Zoitland will be here with his book, Rescued. So it's going to be a great hour. John Bradshaw, welcome to the show, and congratulations on this m- amazing book. Thank you. People might remember that you've been on the show before with Cat Sense and Dog Sense, but this, this book takes a, a huge overview, the, the subtitle being How Pets Make Us Human, an overview going back to the earliest human times, even pre-human times, and how our interactions with animals have affected us, affected them, affected history. Is This this feels like a book that's a lifetime in the making. Does it feel like that to you? Uh,
1: yeah, roughly half a lifetime anyway. I started <laughs> thinking about this in the 1990s. So, uh yeah, it, it's been a long time. Um and it, it takes a it's a different approach to the other two books, The Cat Sense and the Dog oh, yeah. Sense, because it looks at, at the other side the other end of the leash, if you like, um at the at the humans and why we have these animals uh in our in our midst, in our homes, which you know, kind of 100 years ago was kind of a practical thing to do. You had a dog for hunting. You had a cat to keep the mice out of your barn. Um, but we've carried on doing it uh, and increasingly doing it in cities where, you know, we don't need them anymore from the practical point of view. We do seem to need them from the psychological point of view. They make us feel good. So that's really where the book started is, is why are we carrying on keeping these animals in our homes? They're very expensive. Um, they can be a nuisance. Um, why, why are we still doing it?
0: I guess for me, the most riveting part of the book isn't the part I expected to be the most riveting. It's looking back at ancient pets and pet keeping, including monkeys and pigs and all kinds of animals. And I guess I have been so immersed in the pet keeping world as I am for the last 12 years. I sort of think, oh, we modern humans, we're so neurotic, we're so needy, we have nuclear families that are destroyed, everyone's separated, and, you know, it's like they, they need an animal to ground them. Let's talk a little bit about the fact that this is what people have always done, even more dramatically, in certain cultures that I was unaware of, Hawaiian cultures and, and other kind of island cultures. Pretty amazing about suckling puppies, John. Let's talk about that.
1: Yeah, they they. Well, the, the, as you say, the, there are people who say, oh, you know, pet keeping is just an affectation. It's to do right. with the breakup of the family and it's stopping people from having kids because they can yes. have a Pomeranian or a Chihuahua instead right. and, exactly. and all those kinds of negative things. Yes. Um, but but this, is, this is, I think, is, is the, wrong, the wrong way to look at it because um, we, know, we don't know what happened 50,000 years ago in regards to pets. But what we can do, what anthropologists have been doing for the past century or so is is going out and looking at societies that are still uh, in isolated parts of the world that are still or were then still living in the ways that they'd done for, uh, you know, for hundreds for tens of thousands of years anyway, maybe 100,000 years. And it kind of surprised them, but they didn't make make too much notice of it. So it's never really been brought to people's attention. They were very interested in the way that the people related to one another and why they had wars and how they stopped having wars and all those kinds of things. Um, And then they kind of noted down as they went along, oh, and these people have all these animals in their villages and they seem to treat them a little bit like pets. And some of them, uh, some of the cultures, they suckle the animals. Um, It doesn't seem to happen in cultures where there is milk from goats or sheep right. or, or, or cows. But where there's no milk-producing domestic animals, the mothers, uh, the women, can suckle uh, these the babies. Um, the baby animals are collected by hunters. Um, when they, they go out hunting, they, maybe they kill the mother um, baby accidentally, then realise that there's, a, there's some babies around, uh, collect them up, uh, bring them back to the village, and then they're brought up pretty much like children. I mean, it really just sort of all mixed in with the kids' Um and this isn't just one of the isolated things that kind of caught somebody's attention once and then um, somebody made a big thing of it. The fact, as I said, that the anthropologists didn't make a big thing of it. But then uh, a few years ago, some people collected together all the different observations and realized they came from all over the world. They came from Amazonia. They came from New Guinea. They came from Hawaii. As you mentioned, they came from Siberia. They came from Alaska, um, anywhere where there was a kind of hunter gatherer type of society going on. With the possible exception of some parts of Africa, um, there was uh, there was pet keeping in an extraordinary way um, because you know there were some familiar animals. Most of them had dogs by that stage because they got them from the people who discovered them, um, but uh, but lots and lots of other kinds of animals as well. So I've started this book out with the uh, with the idea that pet keeping is something that's in human nature. Uh, we've yes. been doing it for for yes. te- for tens of thousands of years. It's not something modern, and then I've tried to. Kind of work out why, um, you know, why has this strange habit um, persisted throughout human history?
0: And and the and the conundrum that many philosophers, animal animal f- thought influencer philosophers like yourself have brought up in the last decade. You know, why do we love some the Hal Herzog book other books? Why do we love some animals and eat others? And here you're bringing up this this information that is c- completely astounding and uh, and a delight to learn about but you're like wow we humans are pretty strange because they were catching the adult monkeys eating them and then the mother the human women were breastfeeding the baby monkeys walking around with them like you say handbag designer dogs nowadays feeding them when their own families human families you know were somehow having to give up some of that food after they breastfed them and eventually even giving them ritualistic burials. This was true in some of these societies that you write about, even with the dogs. It's like people were schizoid even then, John. Is this just part of human nature? And so You talk about the human DNA and the drive to make these relationships. It's it, the fact that the two ideas can coexist, eat and suckle, and treat like one of us that's kind of an amazing thing that i would think was more of a modern philosophical politically correct position
1: (laughs) yeah it it is complicated um and it's kind of almost contradictory as well as you say that some of the things that some of the combinations of things that these societies people in these societies did or did is, is incomprehensible to us um I think that all the detail is uh is pretty much to do with culture, so the reason that a particular Amazonian tribe um, have monkeys as a very as a very important part of their social lives and the the head woman of the of the village goes around with four, or four monkeys draped over her shoulders all the time it 's like a kind of ceremonial robe if you like, except it 's alive it's it's young monkeys um and at the same time, those those people have dogs. They've had them for a couple of centuries, um, so they should have had time to get used to them. And they don't treat treat their dogs very well. Um, in fact, it, people have observed that the dogs are s- sort of scavenging around and they pick up the food that the monkeys drop and eat that. <laughs> it's, um, so you know, the, the it, it, every if you go into any one of these ones, any one of these societies, the animals they choose to look after and, and cherish, and the ones they choose not to seems to me to be pretty arbitrary. It's a culture. It's a thing that they they suggest a kind of set of values that that particular culture has. And then even, you know, 100 miles away, it would be a completely different set of animals and a completely different set of rules. Um, So that's why there's this tremendous variation. But underneath it all, they all have some animals that they really treat extremely well. And we just choose to do it today with dogs and cats because I think uh, because we have a culture of that and because they're very convenient.
0: Oh, those of us that that you know comment on oh, you know, small dogs should walk on all four feet just like they were intended to, and you don't have to carry them in a baby sling. I mean, people buy things like baby bjorns and things you're meant to sort of swaddle a human infant in, and they put dogs in it. And there may be people who think, "Good golly, really? What is that?" You you know, you need a shrink or something. But if you look back, because you've shown us looking back at the way that. I mean, at least we're not breastfeeding them. And I don't mean that it would be bad to breastfeed them, but at least we're not going there because, well, we do have cows and other sources of milk and and milk replacement. But these aboriginal hunters that you write about who collected dingo puppies because it made them suckled a feral wild dog and they use it as a bed warmer and a play toy for their child. And then when it got a little too old, they just sent it back to the wild, no problem. That's pretty nutty, right?
1: It's, well, it does seem very strange to us, but uh, I guess to them it doesn't. You know, it's just the, way, uh, they, the, the best way they have to, to express that yes. uh, love for animals, particularly young ones. Um, and then, you know, eventually the animal decides more or less that, uh, that this is not what it wants to do and it goes back into the wild. It's, um, you know, it, it's, a, it's a strange thing but that it, that it takes so many different forms around the world. But I think underneath it all is this common thread of affection.
0: Well, you have a line that I particularly love when you're referring in a kind of big sweeping way from the transition from Paleolithic to Neolithic. You know, we all hear 100,000 years, 9 million years. It doesn't really matter. We're kind of fascinated by, gosh, look what they were doing with dogs at the time. And your statement, which I'm just going to read, is the domestication of the dog from wolf occurred much earlier when all humans lived as hunter-gatherers of one kind or another. And this was the thing that really struck me. We kept dogs before we invented writing, before we had permanent homes, before we grew crops. So that's how fundamental they are to being human on the planet. That's kind of, uh, you know, sobering in a good way. They're really part of us. They're part of our our, our humanness, Right.
1: Yeah, I think that they must be. I mean, how much have they changed us? Um, that's right. a, you know, a very interesting question. I think they have undoubtedly changed our cultures. They, they've helped us to form our cultures, um, They not necessarily deliberately. I mean, we have some evidence that, uh, for example, in the Fertile Crescent, where you know, the first planting of crops took place, um, one of the reasons, one of the drivers behind that was uh, that hunting and gathering was, but the hunting part particularly was getting harder. And the reason it was getting harder was because people had been too successful. They'd actually hunted most of the gazelle and so on um, and killed them. And the reason they'd been so successful over the past 10, 20,000 years was because they'd had dogs to help them. Um, yes. And that must have been a gradual process. I I'm not saying that that the very first wolf, you know, and the very first man who got together were uh, amazing hunting partners. I'm sure it took a long time to evolve because a, an untrained dog is a liability on a hunt, not a, right. not a benefit. Um, but but as that relationship developed over over hundreds thousands of years, um, it became very successful and. We became we as humans became very successful, too successful at hunting uh, all kinds of animals, and we actually ran out of protein, uh, or at least it became harder to find. And that was one of the things that drove two well, two things really. One was the domestication of crops, um, but particularly the domestication of other animals. So the the pig, for example, was uh, the goat, and the sheep were the next ones to come along, and. Um, they're, they're walking larders so, and that I think was necessary <laughs> <laughs> once we like found that. that going out hunting was just much less profitable than it used to be um so we, we as humans were forced to to devise an alternative strategy so you could you could almost say you know dogs were the were part of um the birth of the the agribusiness of, agribus- of to modern agribusiness you know where we we raise thousands millions of cattle and sheep and and so on to, to feed our, our societies. So that all began, uh, if we hadn't had dogs, maybe we would never have started.
0: Because we wouldn't have, well, you have some, there's some wonderful illustrations and drawings um, and depictions from, you know, caves and so forth. But there's one of the woolly mammoth that you say in the book was driven extinct in no time. And it shows a big pack of hunting dogs out with the, the humans. And the woolly mammoth looks like, not such easy prey and yet we destroyed it i guess
1: yeah and i think we de- we destroyed it with the help of dogs i mean that seems yes, to have been true yes. in the in, in the americas the, the extinction of a lot of these um animals coincided with the arrival of people with hunting dogs um there, there were other extinctions. There was one in Australia, for example, long before humans even got there. So we can't blame dogs for everything. But I think, um, well, perhaps we should blame ourselves uh, rather than the dogs. They, right. they, were just, they were just there for the ride. Um, uh, so it wasn't always dogs. But I think that sometimes um, some of these extinctions were uh, were precipitated by, um, by people having dogs to hunt with.
0: And by how successfully we, we partnered with them. And, and I still go back to the fact that, you know, suckling them at a woman's breast, the, the dingo, the, the aboriginals said that made the dingoes a better hunting companion. It's a, it's a daunting thought. I don't think I want to necessarily put that out into the ether that people, you know, should get themselves a few young puppies and try the breastfeeding idea. Of course, it would have to be women that are constantly having, lactating and being pregnant, I guess, in, in those tribal cultures, you pretty much went from one pregnancy to another and... And there you had it. It was pretty surprising. And then you talked about other cultures where they breastfed pigs and, and little deer and stuff. Before, just to, to wrap up, the, the whole topic of the relationship on a chemical, psychochemical um, level and, the, and the, the effects of oxytocin, which you talk about a lot. And on a few of my dog training shows, it's come up as being a, a positive, a, you know, very powerful bond that, that touching a dog or being around a dog or a cat. Releases it. You have some really great stuff in here, John, about oxytocin and what it does to the brain and attachment. Can you kind of summarize that? Because I think it's something that the animals among us is just another huge area of exploration and thought on your part.
1: Well I think this whole business of touch um you know yes. it's one of the things that uh we we owners value in our animals you know we're 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 constantly stroking them it's one yes. of the pleasures you get from yeah you get a pleasure you get fun from playing with them and, and and talking to them and all sorts of other things but a lot of the time it boils down to touch and this is something that um, again, I, I feel is probably uh, very deep-seated in human nature. And we know that our primate ancestors, I mean, now millions of years ago, we're talking about um, it, chimpanzees today and, and almost certainly um, the, the, the the common ancestor we have. Uh, they all spend a lot of their time grooming one another and it's their form of social uh, discourse. It's the way they bond with one another. Um, two, two monkeys that never touch one another are almost certainly enemies. So um, it's something that I think we want to do, but of course, you know, we're we're not very hairy anymore um, and there are lots of taboos about touching people in our society. And so... um, uh, stroking an animal just is just a wonderful get out for let out for that, and and there have been some studies done of people with with uh, fake fur to see what kinds of psychological changes p- take place in people just stroking fur without any kind of animal to talk to or anything like that. Just literally the tactile sensation it, it changes people's moods, It makes them much more accepting, it makes them more uh, more relaxed. So I think so. This is so a, it definitely
0: a, explains teddy bears teddy bears hey. for adults as well as for children. When you <laughs> said we're, n- we're not that hairy anymore, one of the facts that, that came out in this section about oxytocin, which is news to me, is that it's more pleasurable to stroke a hairy part of someone's body, like their forearm, than the smooth skin on their palm, like holding hands. Now, I didn't know that, but it's very interesting, all these people getting depilitated Maybe they should let their hair grow
1: back in. <laughs> well, I think that that's in the context of, of when you don't know who, you, you know, who the, because the, this is oh, all done you know, kind of in the dark where, in the experiments. So that you don't, it's not, a, it's not part of an expression of a relationship. If, you're, if it's somebody you're very, very close to, then um then the smooth skin is attractive but uh, but when you're not um I then uh, then it's the hairier skin that that seems to be more neutral in a way uh, i think the the rest of the other part maybe the smoother skin maybe just make you feel slightly uneasy you know who is this <laughs> <laughs> um. But uh, no, I think touch is, is a huge part of, of, um, uh, of our relationship with our animals. And of course, it does, you know, it's been shown to release oxytocin. You get a surge of oxytocin from, from stroking a friendly dog. Um, you know, it should, uh, it, when it does, it de stresses people um, in the short term. Uh, whether it has the same effect in the long term is, is more debatable. Because if if it does, if it did, then cats in particular would, you know, cat owners should live ten years younger. Length, y- Ten right. years longer than right. people who don't own cats, and that isn't actually true. So um, I think the, the benefits are quite short term, but that, that's not to put them down. I mean, it, it genuinely does, you know, make people feel good, and it's it, it it's a it's a good feedback. It improves mood, um, and so w- why not? You know, it's a it's a it's a nice thing to do. It's harmless,
0: and, if, and it also speaks to the 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 sort of genuine value of emotional support animals, these ESA animals, many of whom are people doing it fakely, taking them on a bus or a plane or where have you. But for people that have various kinds of emotional challenges, you're, the studying that's been done and, and what you have here is proof positive that it is it does increase their, their comfort in being in, in society or whatever their issues are. So there is a, a technical scientific base for it.
1: Oh, sure. Yes. Yes, indeed. I mean, there's been lots of studies done recently. There's a a fad both over uh, here and in a gathering in in America for um, university students about to take examinations. They they said they provide roomfuls of dogs
0: for these people to go and stroke
1: them. Um, and, oh and on the back of that, it was happening in university. So, you know, why don't the psychologists have come along and studied it? And it genuinely is de stressing. Whether oh, it helps wow. the students to get better, better grades, um, that hasn't really been looked at, but certainly it makes them feel a lot more relaxed. Uh, just before they go into to, to take, sit their examination. So, so then presumably you know
0: the, if your anxiety is down, you have more access to the knowledge that you've accumulated because otherwise anxiety just sort of makes your mind go blank. We've all had that blank feeling.
1: Absolutely. In test. Yeah. 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 No, that, 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 it must help in to some extent, but, but it definitely does make them feel, you know, much more, much better about themselves, much more relaxed, better mood, uh, and so these things are extremely powerful. Uh, now, that, to me, really, the you know the interesting question is why are they so powerful? Uh, right. I say I think it's because they allow us to express instincts that we have inherited from way, way back in our past, um, and these are the outlets we have for them today.
0: Well, I I think the real beauty of the book, "The Animals Among Us: How Pets Make Us Human." is the long view the long view of people and animals of all kinds and how we've interacted with them and not just some really amazing facts but then some really interesting conclusions john you have really done something remarkable with this book and i i think that that way beyond cat and dog owners and lovers there will be i hope there will be a real embrace of it because i think it really does help us understand how we can be better humans or more happy humans or more comfortable humans and that all some of the things we think are crazy that we do with and for our pets are just fine, right?
1: I think they're fine, yes. I think it's really just an expression of human nature. It's exactly. by and large, it's harmless. And it, and and I think also pet pet lovers uh, are, are animal people. They're not just pet people. And if they're animal people... Then um, in fact, there's some new research showing that they're actually more likely pet pet lovers are more likely to want to protect the planet than people who don't have pets. So I think they're good people as well.
0: Excellent. That makes all of us good people. Everybody listening, John, thank you so much for, for your time and for this marvelous book. I look forward to talking to you again soon. We might have to revisit some of these topics. It's such a rich well of them. Thank you so much.
1: It's been great talking to you.
0: You take care. Bye-bye. we will be right back after this quick word with Sandy from Operation Kindness in Dallas. This show is brought to you by Halo Holistic and Humane Natural Dog and Cat Foods, which are made with only whole meats, never with rendered chicken meal or byproduct meal. There are new formulations at Halo which reflect whole, holistic, and humane practices. Halo says no to factory farming, growth hormones, antibiotics, artificial flavors, coloring, or preservatives in their foods, and sources cage-free poultry, pasture-raised beef, and wild-caught fish. The new Halo has no GMO vegetables. All fruits and vegetables are sourced from farmland that prohibits the use of genetically modified seeds. What's new about Halo will matter to you, farm animals, and the planet. I am here with Sandy Laird from Operation Kindness in Dallas. They were the beneficiary of the New York Dog Film Festival when it was there at the Alamo Draft House, And Sandy was there, as I understand it, with a basket of puppies who actually found homes right in front of the Dog Film Festival. So that's pretty cool. Sandy, welcome to the show. It's great to have you here.
2: Thank you very much. I was glad to have
0: all right. Uh, you, the chance uh, to get. Uh, it's a
2: pleasure.
0: <laughs> it's a pleasure. Um, explain about Operation Kindness. You are, are you a shelter? Do you work with shelters?
2: No, we are an animal shelter. We're the oldest and largest no-kill animal shelter in the North Texas area. Yes. We've been in business a little over 40 years.
0: And I, I understand that in addition to the fun that everybody had at the Dog Film Festival and these puppies that I want to talk about, You, after uh, the storm Harvey, the one that devastated Texas, you received something like 55 dogs. Is that right?
2: We got uh, a little over 70 to 80 dogs and cats from the Baytown, Corpus Christi, Houston area right after the storms.
0: And that's partly because you are such a large and well-known shelter, I guess, that they realized that if anybody could absorb the overflow, you could.
2: Well, we, we absorbed what we could. I wish we could have taken more, but it, it was a very bad storm and there was a great need. So we stepped in and did our part like most of the shelters in our area.
0: So one of the questions one has at a time like that is, is that the perfect time to talk about microchipping and the fact that you could have returned many of those dogs eventually to their rightful owners if they had been microchipped? Is is that the case? Do people microchip a lot in Texas or not enough?
2: We are doing it more and more. It's it's becoming mandatory in a lot of shelters, even to get your dog out of the shelter. All shelters, most of them require microchipping of on shelter placed animals. So we're getting we're moving forward and it looks like it's it's taking a, a turn for the best.
0: That's great because you don't want to have an own dog and have to try and figure it out and figure out how to rehome it when the, the person who owns it might very well be looking for it in a, in a storm situation, right? That's correct. That's very correct. So what did you do? Did you put up pictures on Facebook in order to reunite those dogs with their rightful owners? Or did you presume that some of them were street dogs and homeless to begin with? How, how did you make that determination?
2: Most of the dogs we got were already available to us to to return to adoption because what we did is we were able to go step up at the beginning of the storm before the actual storm. And we took the animals that were already in the shelters that were, that were ready to be released for adoption. And it made room to keep as many animals in those shelters in the, in the South Texas area so that they would be available for owners to reclaim easier. So we took animals that to make room for the homeless animals, the ones that were lost, then we took the ones that we were able to go ahead and rehome.
0: Yeah, you explained that really well. And I think that is what happens when there is pre-disaster planning. Just what you said is Mm -hmm. to open up some beds, if you will, in the local shelter for just the reason that you said. So tell a little bit about the puppies that you brought to the Dog Film Festival. How many were they and where were they from? and, 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 And how did it all unfold?
2: We actually took eleven puppies over and did all wow. but two. We got we got all but two adopted, and I think those two got adopted the next day. So oh, it was a greatly really successful event. We took small dogs and puppies uh, because, quite frankly, that's mostly what people, you know, want to see. And 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 we have very good luck placing larger animals too. But in a in a when we're in a. a movie lobby it's easier to handle them (laughs) if they're a little smaller i'll say
0: definitely
2: (laughs) and puppies are easy because people can hold them and we can put little play pins out for them where people people can see them so it was very successful we had a a great time and people enjoyed it and uh, as i said we did a very good adoption rate we did nine out of the eleven
0: that's absolutely huge that's the most adoptions that have ever been done by any shelter that's a beneficiary of the Dog Film Festival. So you win a huge award for that. Did you find people that <laughs> were you. just going by and maybe not even intentionally going to the festival who noticed the, the dogs yeah. and the puppies were interested? We
2: actually had several people that were actually going to the movie house that, that just saw them and adopted, but we always do some, some uh, pre-advertising most uh, basically for both the Alamo draft house and our shelter stating that this is where the dogs would be at this specific time. And people were, were able to come either adopt and go to the movies or they were already at the movies <laughs> and saw us so there. It works really, good both ways. It really
0: does. <laughs> and it's, it sort of was my dream. And, and, You made the dream come true, the idea that there could be a mixture between people wanting the entertainment and the emotional value of seeing films about dogs, but also feel that the local rescue community is included, is a beneficiary, is part of the party, and the work that you do is every bit as real, well, obviously, it's actually a little more real than a movie, to be honest, but a lot of the movies are about rescue and about adoption and rehoming and, you know, training They are prisons and they're wonderful movies but to see in real time in real life people stepping up and go i will give that little one a home is is pretty wonderful because i think that when people are given that option they will step up and do it now have you been involved in other events at the alamo
2: yes we have and we've always been successful with this is our fourth uh partnership with the alamo draft house and uh uh, James Wallace is excellent. He's helped us a lot, and uh, uh, he's a big dog lover. So it always helps when the 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 people we're working with are are in the same uh, yes, boat that we're step. in. They yes. they want to rescue dogs and they want to help as many as possible. So we've always had really well planned um, events at those draft houses.
0: I think so it's, we've it's, done
2: both the Dallas and the Richardson.
0: All be dark. Well, it's just really—I don't know. I just think it's—it's the thing we love is to have the idea of adoption and rescue be part of everyday life, be seamlessly part of how people add pets to their family, and just have Mm -hmm. it be natural, not some act of extraordinary fabulousness. Just oh, we, we have room for a dog or another dog or a puppy. You know, it's just like, that makes sense. And so we'll do it because here they are looking for a home. It's got to be a good feeling. And that
2: has to happened. That has actually been the case a lot of times.
0: It's just, it's really nice to know. How many how many animals do you have at one, any one time in Operation Kindness?
2: Uh, if we're talking dogs and cats, generally we range about 300 uh, in the shelter in the actual shelter with another 100 to 200 in foster depending on the time of the year wow uh, we so are expanding many our fosters? foster program wow. we are expanding our foster program so we are going to have more in foster because a lot of the animals that came from the hurricane went into foster care until they could be rehabbed because there were there actually were some injuries for some of those animals so oh so we had to take care of them for a little while
0: so the foster families—have you cult—is that one of your main areas of cultivation, if you will, to to identify those? My people? personal
2: one. We have an adoption—I uh, mean, a foster manager. Uh, basically, my role at Operation Kindness now is strictly off-site adoption events. So I take care of the ones on the outside of the shelter, but I work very closely with the foster program and the intake program to be sure that we have enough animals to go both to the events and to supply our main shelter. So we have enough for everybody to come and visit and and, and take what they want to take home.
0: Everyone's got a good choice of the small, the, 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 yeah, old there's and the,
2: there's a lot up. of people. There's a lot of people that just still have a hard time seeing a dog in a cage. So yes. that's, that makes on-site events nice because they're coming to an open location where it's a little different and they don't have to see a dog in a cage, even though ours is a fun place to be and animals have a great time there because we have so many opportunities for them to get out of their cages and go into play yards and everything. But there's still a stigma there. So we, we try to, to help with everything by, by giving them a different venue for adoptions.
0: Makes a lot of sense. There are people who say, oh, it's too depressing to go to a shelter or I can't go home with just one. Well, you know, you can only save a life one at a time. So it's really great to be able for you to take, you know, a cross section of dogs out and away so that people aren't so overwhelmed by the emotion of being in the shelter with the barking and the noise. And no matter how nice your shelter is, it still looks kind of like a jail because that's the nature of <laughs> a, you know, an institution. I think it sounds yeah. to me like Operation Kindness has really thought this through very carefully and has compartmentalized the, the various ways that people can meet and greet and take home a pet. So I'm thrilled to have, have partnered with you guys. In in Dallas, Sandy, and I hope that we'll do that again next year and maybe be adding the the Cat Film Festival and maybe some of the kitty lovers could come over and take home a cat or a kitten. That would be a a great added bonus, right?
2: That would be great because we have lots of kitties in the shelter, too.
0: I know, the poor kitties, they don't move out quite as quickly. Well, it's been wonderful talking. to you. Actually, ours
2: do. We do real well with both cats and dogs.
0: Well, I I think Operation Kindness that we should clone you because you guys really seem to have have figured out a really efficient and effective way to to find new homes for pets. Thank you so much, Sandy, for being here and for being part of, of the Dog Film Festival tour around the country. We look forward to seeing you and playing with you again. Thank you. We enjoyed it. Take care. I'll be right back after this quick word with Peter Zoitland and his new book, Rescued. This show is made possible in part by Precious Cat Litter, owned by Dr. Elsie, who has his own cats-only clinic in Colorado. He has devoted his life to inventing innovative litters for the health of all members of the family. Now he has created healthy, dry, and canned food for kitties called Clean Protein, inspired by the protein levels found in a cat's natural prey. 90% of the protein in clean protein kibble and cans is animal-based, not the plant-based ingredients in most dry cat food like grains, potato, vegetables, and fruits. All of those are high in oxalate and lead to rapid metabolization, which actually increases your cat's hunger. The high biological value proteins in clean protein result in your cat's appetite being satisfied longer without compromising her health. If you want to feed dry food to your cat, even as part of her diet, Make the healthier choice. The proof is in the protein. And Dr. Elsie's precious cat litter is the founding sponsor of the New York Cat Film Festival, which debuts in New York City on December 9th. Here I am with Peter Zoitlin, who wrote the New York Times bestseller and a big interesting conversation on dog talk a couple of years ago, Rescue Road. And here he is back with Rescued, what second chance dogs teach us about living with purpose loving with abandon, and finding joy in the little things. Peter, congratulations on writing this book. It seems to me your heart and soul are poured into it, and, and it's evident on every page.
3: Well, thanks very much. It's good to talk to you again.
0: Well, your your commitment to rescue, your the long time you spent traveling the country to, to get a, an overview as well as an up-close view of, of what happens in rescue and how dogs get moved from one place to another and wind up in their forever homes eventually. It seems like you gathered a lot of wisdom along the way and felt there were a lot of uh, examples, I guess, of the ways in which people have melded or molded a dog into their lives, regardless of challenges. And I guess that's really the point of the book. Is it not to to help guide people and support them in that transition?
3: Yeah, I think that anyone who gives a second chance dog a home has certain things in common. They go through certain experiences that we all share. Um, and it wasn't just, you know, my talking about my own experience, but I interviewed a number of people who brought a rescue dog into their lives. And, you know, certain themes seem to repeat themselves over and over again. And I think what really stood out to me was that when you adopt a rescue dog, as opposed to buying a dog from a breeder or a pet shop is that there's it just adds some layer of meaning to the entire experience and either you know all dogs are great and all dogs will love you and all you know dogs you can get from anywhere will be lovable but when you look at that dog that but for you you know might have been might have had its life extinguished in a high kill shelter or might still be wandering the streets somewhere down south it just makes it all the more and, you know, it makes you feel good.
0: (laughs) Yes. I I think that the the stories of the dogs that share our lives, the ones that come from rescue or even rehoming from someone we might know, but a situation that went kind of wonky, that Mm -hmm. every time you see that dog, and you talk about this about a number of the different dogs that you highlight, you see in that moment of them being happy and frisky or just snoozing or having a good lunch, you think oh my god you lived on a chain for eight years until now you talk about a lady yeah. in, in vermont talk a little about her because i happen to live in vermont as well and one of the things that most horrified me when i first moved here is that it's quite legal and common certainly in more remote areas to keep a dog on its chain as long as it's eight feet long that's their idea of, mm. of humane for its whole life every day for its yeah. whole life and one of the dogs that she had um, had lived such a life. So talk a little bit about that lady and that place, because it, it's really quite wonderful. All the labs there, yeah. its labs rescue. They're all they've had a pretty, pretty uh, dismal pre-life to coming to paradise, right?
3: Yes. Yeah, so her name is Adrian City, and She lives in southern Vermont, on um, many acres in an old farmhouse. Uh, I've been there. she has got a beautiful piece of property. She's now got, I believe. 10 rescue labs. Um, and you know, they live a very good life. She's, you know, sometimes you mention a number like that and people think, well, this is a hoarding situation. It's not at all because each dog is very well cared for is outdoors much of the time. Um, and Adrian chronicles their life with her on Facebook every day. She happens to be a remarkable photographer. Um, but One of her dogs came, you know, she finally persuaded a neighbor who had had this poor dog living, you know, as you said, on a a chain for many years, finally persuaded them to surrender the dog to her. Now, I saw a lot of this down south in particular. You can walk through neighborhoods in southeast Texas, dangerous neighborhoods where virtually every front yard has a pit bull. Living on a chain,
2: mm-hmm.
3: um, and it's brutally hot. Um, when I went out with some volunteers. There was one dog in particular got its chain all tangled, and it couldn't reach this really rather pathetic water source, a little old swimming pool with dirty water. And you know what? What kind of a life is this for a dog? And you know what's amazing is that you think when you approach a dog like that, it's going to be mean and vicious, and you know some of them. To become that way, but most of them just wanted to have a a human being touch them and caress them. And so these dogs, you know, I had some of the same misconceptions about rescue dogs when my wife first suggested it to me. You know, that these might be dogs who are temperamentally unpredictable or unhealthy. And in fact, nothing could be further from the truth. You know, good rescue groups. Carefully screen their dogs, and most of the time, it works out great. And these dogs are forgiving; they tend to live in the present, not in the past, um, which is one of their great virtues for teaching us. I think. Yeah. Um, so you know, it's just amazing that you know go, for example, to, to Adrian's farm and see ten labs peel out the door towards the pond on her property, and you know, just having you know the sense of freedom. I mean, some of the dogs that, you know, people I interviewed have adopted spent years never knowing what it was like to walk on, you know, a lawn or to wade into a stream uh, or take a run on a beach. Um, And, you know, that's what you can give these dogs. And it's just, you know, it's just such a gift that you give to them and they, they repay it a thousand times, times over, you know
0: but it's it's true that when you when you know their history and you know the deprivation that they've had that it's very hard not to feel more warm and fuzzy and more mm-hmm. that it's more special the life you can give them you take nothing for granted and there is mm-hmm. this crazy sense that I'm sure we project onto dogs that we've been able to do that with but we do mm-hmm. think all of us that they know that we Took them to this better place and they are filled with gratitude now that not may not be the word that the dog brain calls it but i I think we all feel that you know you you talked about one dog in the book who had been crated i think you know like 20 hours a day or 23 and a half hours a day never been out of the crate and when i got teddy he was um a rehome through the trainer I was working with. And she was a trainer for a, a woman whose life had gone to complete disarray. A uh, woman yeah. had been a, a board certified human surgeon and had had a nervous breakdown over a divorce and was drinking to blackout. And this, this young Weimaraner, he was seven months old, was in a cage. And when, and when he got out of it, this crate, he didn't get out of the house. So he was just, completely destroying furniture and trying to play with an older wine runner was there that would attack him because the older dog was sick attacked him to the Mm. point that apparently he even one of the ears came off and this lady surgeon when she sobered up human surgeon sewed it back on but but the trainer said to me i have and i had three large dogs at the time two rescued wine boys and a rottweiler boy and that was found in the street and so I, the idea of taking in another large male sounded like a little bit of management. And she said, I have never seen sorrow in a dog's eyes like I've seen in this dog. And I will mm. tell you that every day of Teddy's life, I just was in awe of the fact that he could shuck that off and embrace every moment free in the woods and free on the beach and free in the house. And he and he wasn't even housebroken because he'd never been housebroken. He house broke himself after one whistle. And that was it. I mean, there was a dog door, yeah. followed the other dogs. And I will say that it was, you never forget what they came with and it becomes part of your story about them and it makes it sweeter what they have now. Now, is that us just being sentimental saps or what?
3: Well, I mean, I think you're right when you you talk about looking into his eyes. I mean, you can look into the eyes of a dog that's been deprived. And when you see that dog transform, it's just glorious, you know? And our older, our oldest and first, rescue, Uh, Albie, who was in a high kill shelter for five months in Louisiana, there was a volunteer that kept buying him time, Um, we didn't know anything about his life before he came to the shelter. And in some ways, I think when you don't know the history, um, even if it's completely mysterious to you, and you don't know what wrongs have befallen this dog, you're still set out to write them anyway. Yes, well said. Um, by just making sure that they feel safe and secure, and you know, one of the things I write about is I think it's an interesting thing to be aware of when you bring your dog into your home is is looking for that moment, if there is a particular moment. There's, there's not always one where a dog is finally telling you it's home. You mean like when Albie jumped ball on ball. your
0: bed after never wanting to get out from under the coffee table for months, that moment? Right.
3: Right. And I had vowed, I told my wife when I finally agreed to get a dog that we were not sleeping in bed with a dog. And after five weeks of never coming upstairs, we didn't know why, but Albie was sleeping under the coffee table in the living room. One night I came up to go to bed and I found it in our bed. And... I, of course, I wasn't, <laughs> I just looked at him. It was so sweet. I clearly wasn't going to kick him out. But that, to me, was his signal.
2: was yes. like his
3: way of saying us, I finally come to the place and I feel safe. And it was just, you know, you know the Yiddish word, you just cavell. you know, kevel means <laughs> to, to, to take great pride and to feel good. And um, it was just a great moment in his life and in, in our life with him to make him to know that he felt comfortable and secure in our
0: home it it is it and and you know if the if one of the points of the book is not just to tell these stories which are wonderful but but to tell what these dogs teach us you know living with purpose loving with abandon and and this sense of being able to forgive and then move into finding joy in the little things and letting go of the harsh ones in terms of of knowing a dog is home you have a couple of examples that are adorable about these dogs that have separation anxiety after they're first adopted, and talk about some of the collections they make of, of objects to make them feel yeah, safe. I talked
3: to um, a woman named Alyssa Altman in Connecticut. Alyssa actually is a, a well-known writer herself, um, and a food writer. And when they brought their rescue dog, Addie, uh, into their home, she and her partner, Susan, like most of us, at first, you don't know how to quite start leaving them alone. They do have to learn at some point to be alone in your house. So most of us will start very gradually and go out for five minutes and peek in the window. Right. Um, but but Addie started, they would come back from being out for 15 minutes. And Addie had you know, gone around the house and collected things like the TV remote and some shoes. And in one case, even pulled a bottle of wine. So <laughs> Case of wine that had been left on the floor and just put them on her bed. You know, she just wanted these things, obviously, to get her comfort. Um, you know, so dogs have all different kinds of ways of uh, telling us things, you know, even though they, they can't literally talk. Um, you know, they're, they're communicating through these actions. And I think, it's, you know, I always say to people, it's not the dog's job to learn to live with you. I mean, they do have to learn certain things, but it's your job to learn how to live with a dog. And that means being very attentive to the things that they're doing and being understanding of it. You know, sometimes people will get impatient um, with dogs that are just doing what comes naturally to them. Um, I mean, sometimes you obviously, you know, I've I've had to extract baby rabbits from Albie's law. (laughs) You know, it's not something that's pleasant and I don't wanna let him, you know, carry through on his intentions, but at the same time, he's doing something that comes very naturally to him. So it's all about learning to, you know, yeah, the dog has to learn that it's not okay to snatch a Thanksgiving turkey off the table, but I'll I'll tell you, apropos of that, I'll tell you the story that a dog named Noah that came up from Houston had been discarded in a area known for dumping dogs and was extremely sick. Um, the nephew that saved him put $10,000 into his recovery and came north and was in Brooklyn. And one day, he was at work with um, one of the people that adopted him. He wandered unbeknownst to her into the little kitchen in her office and there was a surveillance camera that she later learned she said, you could watch Noah with his name come in and kind of sniff the table and eventually get up on the table using a chair that was next <laughs> to it and devouring the entire breakfast buffet they had been laid out for the employees and this is a dog that had to struggle on the streets of Houston to survive can you really blame him
0: no um, if somebody's going to offer himself, Thanksgiving breakfast so to speak you know good yeah, for him so, for finding it
3: so I think one of the things that I know I hope the book conveys is that these things are going to happen in your life with a dog and try and have a sense of humor about it. Try and understand that your dog is a dog. It's not a child. It's not a person. Um, Although we, you know, sometimes relate to them as such, but you know, a dog is going to do what a dog does. And that's part of integrating them into your life.
0: I think that a lot of what I come away from the book with is it sort of thanks on both ends of the leash, you know, thank you for saving yeah. me. Thank you for giving me this different and better life. And then we feel thank you for allowing us to do that. And thank you for allowing us to share your dogness and, and see things yeah. through your your dog vision of the world, which is a, a more, you know, live in the moment and, and move forward than it is brooding yeah. about the past and, and licking your wounds, so to speak, right?
3: I mean, I, we, we have our third rescue likes nothing more than to run after a tennis ball. And she will do this if I let her for 24 hours a day. I mean, she was born to be a ball girl at the U S open in Forest Hills. It's all she wants to do. And, you know, there are times when I look there, I think her life is complete with a tennis ball. (laughs) That's all she wants. (laughs) The rest, you know, the rest is just noise. And, you know, it really sometimes helps you get a little bit of perspective when you see a creature that is utterly delighted and satisfied and fulfilled with a tennis ball. Um, you know, it just makes you think. And I think that's one of the things that dogs really bring into our lives is they kind of help us put our own lives and our own troubles into perspective.
0: Well, your book has certainly brought that home. And uh, reminded us all of that. So I really want to thank you for it, Peter. Rescued, what second chance dogs teach us about living with purpose, loving with abandon, and finding joy in the little things. I hope you continue to find joy for us in all the little stories and all the big triumphs and uh, the avoided disasters in the world of rescue. Peter, you've obviously become a great champion for the cause, and it's wonderful to have you there speaking on behalf of those of us that are grateful that we got those dogs and for those dogs and the ones to come who are looking for that chance, right? Right.
3: Well, thank you so much, Tracy. It
0: was was really good to talk to you Take care. Bye-bye. So I just would like to take this little minute or a few minutes, which I rarely give myself, but here it is, Thanksgiving weekend. And you know, we're always supposed to go around the table, so to speak, and talk about what we're thankful for. And what I've discovered in in both the many years doing this show and the other Pet Talk radio shows I do, but particularly this one because I know so many of you on the East End and because Dr. Wally Smith and Bonnie Grice and my engineer Kyle Lynch have been part of my life as part of Peconic Public Broadcasting from day one back in the WLIU days. And it really is a privilege. I never... Sometimes I get tired and sometimes I get overwhelmed with planning it and organizing it and you know, getting all the ducks in a row. But it's quite a privilege to be able to devote and dedicate at least one big part of my life to looking for the people and the stories and the emotions and the kind of philosophies that are part of a very positive part of our lives. And that's the part in which animals are connected. And the Dog Film Festival has done that even in some way, not to a greater degree, but a different degree, because I've, I've had the pleasure of viewing hundreds of films at this point. Not all of them can make it into the festival because the time allotted is so tight, basically. Um, and not all of them are perfect, but each of them comes with such a sense of passion and purpose and intensity about that filmmaker's Feelings about their dogs, all dogs, whether it's funny, whether it's sad, whether it's a documentary or an animation or a narrative, it's really very touching to know how much animals are part of what makes us better and makes us more real and grounds us. And seeing people come into the dog film festival, they come in with a sense of wonder. I don't don't get the sense that you might see in, in other sort of entertainment, if you will, events where people come in with a chip on their shoulder. Yeah, let's see what you got. It's more like, I'm ready. I'm ready for whatever this is. I'm a little scared because I think I'm going to be sad. Everyone thinks they're going to be sad. And they do have tears. And very often they're tears of joy from emotion. And one of the things I said when I was at Bay Street not long ago with the film festival in Sag Harbor Uh, was okay I want to warn you guys you're going to cry but you aren't going to cry because anything sad happens and nothing bad happens to any dogs in these movies but it's going to touch that place in your heart and soul that dogs and cats have touched in your soul probably throughout your life and I think we get scared of emotion we get scared of feeling choked up of having tears come and I think that's just maybe the nature of you know keeping it together and getting through the day and, and running a business or, or managing a family or whatever it is that, that we do fundamentally with our lives, human to human. But I think it's important that that connectedness to a deep well of emotions and gratitude and sweetness and sadness, um, because every time we see our dogs and cats, we know they're probably not going to outlive us. But I think that those emotions are something that, That it's really important to stay connected to so you have that moment where you're hugging the cat or stroking the dog or throwing the tennis ball endlessly and you think wow you really are the coolest creature it's really fine to kind of find that inner child that that undefended vulnerable part of ourselves and say dogs make us more who we'd like to be and kitties allow us to feel moments of peacefulness and tenderness and it just, I think we move too fast. I think if we're lucky, animals can slow us down a little bit. But I would just say that one of the things to be thankful for, if you do have animals in your life, is for what they can bring us and what they allow us to give them. Because the, that whole unconditional love concept, it I don't believe it's that dogs and cats show us unconditional love because they only know one kind of emotion or one kind of love or one kind of positivity. I think what's moving to us even if we don't realize it consciously, is that it allows us to show unconditional love. We can express it. And that's something that we can't do, even sometimes in our most intimate relationships. We have kids that don't want us to do that all over them. We have partners that are, you know, busy or defended. We have parents that that we probably have very complicated relationships with. So, I just want to put the idea out that something to be really thankful for is that our pets allow us to to show as much love as we are capable of and sometimes more than that. So I thank you all for being part of this journey and uh, just a lot of feeling, a lot of gratitude to have the opportunity that we all have to share a part of our lives that's really precious and, and often overlooked, which is the animals in our lives. Thank you so much for listening. Enjoy the rest of the weekend. Give thanks whenever and however you can, and we will talk again next week.